2: Hey, this is Jen Pilcher, Navy spouse of 23 years. And when I'm not helping military spouses connect in our digital community, I'm Stacking Benjamins.
3: Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamins Show. (laughs) I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today should be a sad day here in the basement because turns out my people didn't get the vote out. I blame Todd, by the way. Well, I'm not your president, but I do have a great consolation prize. On today's show, we welcome the man behind the market wizard series of books. Jack Schwager. Ever wonder how the best traders do it? You'll find out today. Plus, another price hike from Netflix? We'll share more bad news during our headline segment. And don't worry, we'll still toss out the Haven Lifeline to Peter, who has a question about accessing retirement funds because of COVID impacts. Of course, I'll give you the real DL on the election and some of my astonishing trivia. And now, two guys who are helping console me from this unfair election result. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G!
0: Do you want to tell him he might not have been ripped off?
4: Doesn't he have a constitutional right to ask for a recount?
0: <laughs> did you, you have to get a certain percentage? How many of hanging chads
4: did he get? That's what I want to know. I believe there were 30 million hanging chads. He would need probably like... 45 million, right? (laughs) Is that kind of the number, give or take, is kind of like the 50-50 number? Yeah, yeah. It'd still be short, so.
0: Welcome to the show that probably is a hanging chat itself, Stacking Benjamins. It's Wednesday, post-election Wednesday, and if you're here like we are just to get away from election mania, welcome to the party, everybody. Glad that you made it. Hey, coming up on uh, next Tuesday, another big event. Two Tuesdays in a row with big events. Next Tuesday, Vicky Robin, Michael Santos, and magician Dan Chan on a live YouTube event we call the Stack, 7 o'clock Eastern, 4 o'clock Pacific, is how you do that math. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash stack to join us. Looks like we're going to have 2,000 people joining us on that day. Should be a lot of fun. Vicki Robin, Michael Santos, Dan Chan, and OG on that thing. we got a great show today, though. Guess who's with us? One of my favorite authors, OG. I've read all of Jack Schwager's books. He has this series called Market Wizards, where he looks at the top traders and how they consistently beat the stock market. You hear this thing about you can't beat the market. The market's really efficient. Jack Schwager talks people who have consistently done it over long periods of time. But first, before we talk to Jack, we got some headlines. So let's get started.
4: Hello, darlings.
1: And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines.
0: Our first headline comes to us from Engadget. The morning after, Netflix price hike takes HD streaming to $14 a month. Did you see this headline, OG?
5: got the horrors
0: netflix is going up it's hard to remember now but when netflix first offered streaming as a standalone subscription back in 2011 it cost just eight dollars a month mm-hmm. now the company's latest price increase pushes that standard streaming rate in the u.s to 14 if you already have an account it'll probably be a couple months before the new rate kicks in you'll be notified first a strategy netflix adopted in 2014 to ease the transition basic tier stays I the same you
4: the strategy is they decided to notify you yeah to let you know
0: before I they raise your rate yeah that might avoid the the class action lawsuit i don't i don't know that there would be one right i think that there's an important reminder here i think this is a great reminder to look at your streaming services i don't know about you but the number of streaming services i have here in the basement og have ballooned i mean in the last year i added disney plus partly cuz I'm a Disney oh, fan, but also partly because it was free for a year, right? We added Apple TV because we wanted to watch a few shows on Apple. Now I have that one. Peacock is now out.
4: There's shows. It'd be on. great if they could just put that all together and you could just watch every program in, for one price.
0: Wouldn't it be wild if you had like 300 channels of, of stuff instead of having to switch between apps? Yeah. If somebody had thought
4: about that. Speaking of Disney Plus, you might have caught this, or maybe you didn't. I meant to tell you. I think it was during your COVID time. So Disney Plus, ESPN, and Hulu are all together now. And if you go on your app, you can say, "Hey, I want to combine these," and it drops the price down a whole bunch.
0: Oh, that is good. Because twelve
4: bucks a month for all three of them. I don't pay for
0: ESPN. What
4: are you communist?
0: It's funny, my Hulu subscription, because I don't have cable, I use the Hulu Ultimate Solution, whatever they call it. Man, that has every game I could ever want
4: on it. I bet there's some games that you can't get. Like, what if you want that NAIA riveting matchup of Panhandle State v. Wayland Baptist? I I gotta have, gotta have that. Gotta get that on the ESPN. I heard the third quarter in that game was wicked. It it was, it was epic. Yeah. Here's the other thing. I would say not only your streaming services, but all of the apps that you pay for, because those are sneaky SOBs too. Cause you're like, eh, four bucks, whatever it eh, is, four bucks. Oh, I'm going to showtime. Eh, 10 bucks, whatever. But you can go on your phone and you can scroll down and say like, Holy cow. Look at all those things. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I, I pay for fitness pal. Hmm. It's being unsuccessful. <laughs> it's not really a pal right now. So I'm going to delete that. It's holiday time. I don't need to be tracking how much candy I eat.
0: Deleted. Even as you say that, I think, you know, we didn't have our trip to Japan to visit my daughter last year and I subscribed to a really good learn Japanese app and like a good American. Now that I'm not going, I'm not even trying to learn Japanese.
4: Konnichiwa. (laughs) You too, pal. (laughs) Exactly. Konnichiwa yourself. Your mom. (laughs) like, guys, you realize that's not exactly how that works. When you say your mom to each other, boys. Not good talking about your own mother
0: and in our second headline normally we quote a major media piece not uh, not today though we're gonna quote uh, the man Steve Stewart get your estate plan done oh gee it turns out that getting your state plan done is a good thing it's the
4: most fun thing
0: to do it is <laughs> very fun here That's to prove how nice. fun it is our engineer extraordinaire mr. Steve Stewart talk about major media piece how are you Steve Major media piece, like like I have to salute
6: major major media piece. <laughs> Hello, I'm standing get at attention for you. Major media piece. Uh
0: you got your estate plan done. We did, we did, and it was uh, it was an event. Well, How did you decide that today was the day? Like now's now's the time that I'm finally going to get the will taken care of.
6: Actually, uh, the day was a decade ago. We actually had uh, tried to go and get a meeting with an estate planner back like 2007. There was an accident on the freeway, so we couldn't make the appointment. We said, "Oh, we'll just schedule it later." It's one of those things that you just don't want to do. So you just keep putting it off. And guess what? It's like 13 years later, we finally said, you know what? It's the time. It was just that we had put it off for so long. And I was frustrated with myself on, on the fact that we were sitting on this information. We weren't doing anything about it.
0: How did you feel when you were getting it done? You know, because a lot of people I think don't do it because it feels a little bit like waving the white flag, right? I'm, I'm admitting the fact that I might be mortal.
6: For me, it was more that this is permanent, but it actually isn't permanent. We did our revocable living trust so we can actually make changes, but it still felt like, you know, we're walking into this lawyer's office to sign all these pieces of paper, and it just felt like we were signing something in blood, and it was so,
4: so legal. uh, Yeah. It feels feels so uh, ultimate. They give you that big old binder full of stuff, and they're like, on page 787, you know, it's all like slow motion. Like it opens the big giant book and yeah, you got to prick your finger and then you sign it. That's how <laughs> that's how ours was. Yes.
0: <laughs> was there anything uh, strange or different about your estate plan? Anything really difficult?
6: Not really. We had a couple of uh, virtual meetings prior to actually getting down there to sign all the paperwork, which was fantastic because I did have a lot of questions. I mean, I obviously listened to shows like Stacking Benjamins, other ones I edit being in the personal finance space, I I felt like I had a good basic knowledge about what was going to happen. So I was able to nail down the details a little bit before we, we met, which should have made it a lot less scary, but it still didn't.
0: This is a question then. You're a guy that knows, as you said, quite a bit about this stuff. You decided to get it done by a pro instead of cranking out the, the do-it-yourself will kit. How come?
6: Oh goodness. I would never get it done if I started that there's one file. I mean, they had to send all this stuff virtually. I have over three gigabytes of PDFs. I mean, that's how big our thing is. And if you know how big a PDF is, it's, it's yeah. small. So, and I'm sure I would have done something wrong had I tried to do it myself.
0: That's really what it's all about, OG, I think, is the insurance, right? That you're doing it right. That's why I like having the pro and not doing the,
4: the do it yourself will kit. Well, I mean, it's just one of those like, what's the cost of being wrong? The cost of being wrong. On your estate plan could be tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars or even all of your money if you run into some issue. So obviously, estate planning is not free. (laughs) Steve just wrote the check. It was uh, an expensive investment. That's what he probably called it or she, your attorney. This is an investment, Steve, in your future. It was so expensive I had to write two checks. Two, checks. <laughs> Two checks. I was going to say you had to finance it, but that wouldn't have been something you would have done. No, <laughs> oh, no. Right. Well, no, I know I've known Steve
0: for a long time. He put it on a credit card, 21% oh, interest,
4: goodness. 21%, $19 a month on a firm. Hey, but OG, now.
0: but he got the rewards. The good news is Steve got all the reward points.
4: He, he can go on an airline trip, but he just has to buy 30 <laughs> more estate plans. Get 30 <laughs> estate plans, get a free, free Southwest flight.
6: I'd like to have that struck from the record, please.
4: <laughs> well, I think our engineer will figure out what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: people might not hear that part. Steve, uh, overall on a scale of 1 to 10, uh 10 being incredibly painless, 1 being very painful getting that done. Where where would you put it on the scale? You said 10 is painless? 10 is painless.
5: Yeah,
6: I I give it an 8 or a 9. It it does feel really good to have it set up. Of course the hard work starts now. Where we actually need to fund the things, put everything into the trust. And then after that, I think we're going to feel a lot better. Plus, we've got one daughter. She's 19. She's in college. So we're not too worried about all that. Who gets to take care of our daughter if we pass away. But it feels good to have all that stuff kind of squared away. And
0: now my wife and I are owned by our trust. But that feels so good. It just, I remember getting mine done. That's got to feel just absolutely fantastic. All right, Steve, OG and I are going to go back to giving you tons of stuff to edit. We're going to make a bunch of mistakes, so we should probably get moving. I'll be there. Big thanks to Steve Stewart for stopping by. Love those lessons today, OG. Lesson number one, check those subscriptions and see all these little charges start adding up. Uh, Since everything's been unbundled, it's uglier. And second, speaking of ugly... Not having that estate plan done, you can hear it in Steve's voice, feeling good about getting the old estate plan done. Big fan of the estate plan. What do you think, OG, about the efficient market hypothesis that says that? Everything is baked in, so you might as well just buy the
4: index. Well, I think you're taking some liberties with that, but, um, <laughs> but I think that <laughs> I think you're grossly rounding. That may, uh, that
0: may not work the way that you think it works.
4: Yeah, I, I, I do think that all information is public instantaneously. I do believe that, uh, especially in today's day and age. But I do think the myth of you can't beat the market, I think is false. You can. The hard part is doing it over and over again. One of my favorite authors way
0: before we had this show, back when I was a financial planner, was Jack Schwager. And one of the benefits of doing this show is that I'm, I'm about to talk to Jack, a guy whose work I've loved for a long period of time. Jack is an experienced trader himself. He's the co-founder and chief research officer of Fundseater, a firm that seeks to find undiscovered trading talent worldwide via its trader platform he was 10 years as a partner in a hedge fund advisory firm uh, 22 years director of futures research for some of wall street's leading firms most recently a little company called prudential securities his books are legendary among uh, anybody interested in trading market wizards in 1989 just a phenomenal book new market wizards 1992 and by the way og these books stand the test of time i opened up market wizards just a couple weeks ago And uh, was digging back in and the lessons that you learn, even when you're not a trader about emotions and about not trading emotionally and about having a system and why some people are successful as investors and why other people aren't. Even if you're somebody that just buys indexes, like a lot of people, like most people listening to this show, the lessons here that Jack and share are phenomenal. So let's get to it. Jack Schwager on my dad's shortwave radio. And on my dad's shortwave radio, a gentleman, I'm really excited to talk to I've wanted to talk to him for a long time. Jack Schwager's with us. How are you, man? I'm doing fine. Well, I feel excited that I get to turn the tables on you a little bit after reading so many interviews where you ask people about their history and about their methodology. Me being able to do it with you is a real treat. Now I just want to start there. What got you interested in trading, Jack, initially way back in the day?
2: Oh, <laughs> I, th- I totally fell into it. So I was uh, out of graduate school uh, with a master's degree in economics and just looking for a job and you know I'm impatient mm-hmm. about getting to work quickly I, mean, I went to employment agencies and I, I didn't get any immediate results so uh, which i I thought I should have uh, so I just put a man in the paper <laughs> looking for a position uh analytical position whatever and that landed me my first job which happened to be a futures out I knew nothing about futures at the time they were in the fact at the time the word commodities was was more was the way they were called because we didn't yet have Stock index futures, interest rate futures, uh, currency futures. Now it's more uh, financial than than commodities. One question I was asked was, you know, what do I know about commodities? And having come from a graduate school in economics in the seventies, I knew nothing about commodities. So uh, they, in fact, they didn't even teach you about the stock market, let alone about something as as esoteric as futures. So. my answer was so bad, I still remember it to this day. I was a, something like gold, you know, question mark. <laughs> um, and uh, luckily, the prerequisite for the job, the director was uh, writing a column for Barron's, and he had four candidate finalists, of which I was one. I must have answered something correctly. And um, he wrote a week, this weekly column on a given market each week, and he gave us each an assignment. And I kind of spent a week in the library, sort of becoming an expert on copper, and wrote, you know, I guess I could even write back in those days. So I basically wrote my way into the job. I was lately told by one of the brokers that, you know, they passed around the papers and everybody said, hey, hire this guy. So anyway, that's how I fell into it. I knew nothing about it. Once I got into it, I said, hey, this is pretty good, you know, because there was was no cookbook on how to do this and it was always changing. So uh, it was kind of a job where you had to kind of figure it out analytically. And the idea of markets and and having to do that type of uh, original analysis uh, was appealing. So I got enamored with it. And of course, once I became an analyst, it was a short step to wanting to do some trading. You asked
0: people about who their mentors were early on. Do you remember any of your mentors early on that were especially uh, instructive?
2: Yeah, well, there was one mentor I would mention specifically. And this is a bit later. This is uh, after two years, I, I kind of became a director of a, of a futures research department at an upper brokerage. I had analysts working for me, and uh, they were all fundamental analysts, and there was one technical analyst. And the technical analyst shared my office with me, and was, we became good friends. And uh, I started noticing that the only analyst, his name was Steve Kronowitz, and I started noticing that the only analyst who was more right than wrong, and were, were right you know, a good amount at a time, was Steve. Coming from an academic background, my attitude was, you know, charts and it's like, it's like mumbo-jumbo black magic, you know, who I just was very skeptical about the whole thing. But I was open-minded enough to see that, hey, whatever he's doing, it's making money and the other people who are doing fundamental analysis are basically not. So I asked him, tell me what you do. And I got to appreciate the idea that the reason technical analysis can work is because in the in ultimate uh, scope of things... The price reflects everything, It reflects every fundamental player, you know, everybody who's uh, in the market, you know, if it's, a, if it's in futures, it's people who are need who are actually buying for a specific need, or people who are selling for a specific need, or people who are speculating, but everything is reflected in the price. So there was a rationale why technical analysis could work. So he influenced me in that direction, which is ultimately, uh, I, I spent several years trading on and off and losing money as a fundamental analyst. And I only became profitable eventually when I was trading, you know, uh, on technical. It also has to do with money management. Technical analysis lends itself to money management. Fundamental analysis makes it much difficult, uh, much more difficult. Say, say you like a stock at 50 bucks and the fundamentals haven't changed. and It goes down to, to 40. Well, you should buy more, you know, because it's even better. Sure. And then it goes to 30. It's even better. And so people go broke that way. Whereas in technical analysis, you say, well, I like the stock. It looks like it's going up. Well, if it starts going down, you're wrong. You're out. You know, so it's it's more compatible with money management.
0: I read, and fact check me on this, Jack, but that you started profiling top traders so that you'd be a better trader in your own personal account. Is that true? Well, that was my,
2: one of my original motivations was, yeah, I said, hey, this is kind of a be fun to do this. And this is a way, you know, I could learn some stuff and become a better trader, so there was that motivation, and it just seemed like a fun project. So, yeah, that, that was certainly you know, one, one element of my thinking. Do you trade now? Yeah, I I don't consider myself a trader per se. I, trading is one of the things I do. I don't do it full-time, every day, all the time. There are periods of time where I trade, like this year, and after I, particularly after I finished the book, I am trading uh, many large, large points of my career, I was so busy that it was almost impossible to find. You know, yeah, I think the trade you have to be able to devote some time to it, and also it's how I have to see something to get me interested. Sometimes, uh, for example, I remember I wasn't trading in 2008, but when I saw the depths of some of these uh, declines, I said, "Hey, this looks to me like a uh, like a classic panic," and it got me back into trading. Uh, in that case, it was a matter of Buying uh, calls on various things, uh, you know, a year plus out because I, you know, wanted to have the time. So that was a case where there was an event which got me back to trading. It's and if I'm not doing well, if if I make money and I start losing, then I'll just stop and I'll come back in a few months when I'm inspired. So I'm a trader on and off, and when I have the time and when I'm inspired, basically. It sounds like
0: you're more somebody now who sees things and then your trader instincts maybe kick in because I know. One of my favorite quotes from one of your books was either go at it at full force or don't go at it at all. Don't dabble. And you found successful traders really aren't dabblers.
2: Yeah, I mean, sure. And that's why I say I'm not a trader. Right. I, I, you know, it's only because I wrote these books that I'm that profitable. Uh, I was a horrible trader. So, and my instincts are not good. And anytime I do a trade on impulse, I'll be wrong. I learned not to do that. Oh, once in a while I slip, but basically I, I've learned to avoid that. I'm a highly impatient person. My wife could tell you I'm the last person you want to be in a car with in the traffic jam. And lack of patience is a a really weakness for a trader. Uh, So a lot of things make me not a good trader. But I kind of know enough just from the people I've spoken to to still make money despite my own lack of instincts for it.
0: I want to talk about some of the personalities early on in your new book. And let's start with the very first one, Peter Brandt, because when you talk about somebody who seems to be patient and also somebody who trades very unemotionally, in fact, to the point that uh, he says that a lot of his trades don't make sense to him uh, uh, logically. Like he doesn't feel like this trade is one that should make sense. And yet he makes it anyway. I feel like... Not just Peter, but a lot of the people that you interview who are traders are incredibly, incredibly disciplined people. Would you say that that's one mark of a great trader?
2: Totally, totally. In fact, uh, there are probably scores of overlapping common traits that make people great traders. But what I'm forced to like name a couple, a few, discipline is always in that top, near the top of the list. And it's probably... No coincidence that it's across the Market Wizard series books I've done, I think there are like four ex-Marines in there. Because, you know, I think the discipline they pick up allows them to be a good trader. So, uh yeah, that's absolutely key. And the thing you mentioned about Peter, about not liking a trade, I mean, basically he's following his methodology. And he says that, um you know, usually the trades he likes the best are not the ones that work. And in fact, he gave one example, like one year, one recent year, the grain markets have gone, went down a long ways and were basing for a long time. And uh, they were very, very cheap, especially in, especially in inflation adjusted times. So he was inclined to be looking for a spot to bind. He tried and he's somebody who gets in. If it doesn't work, he gets out pretty quickly. But he made a number of uh, losing trades, which in this case, each trade doesn't cost that much, but he had a number of losing trades continually trying to find a place to buy these markets. And then there was a spot where one of the grain markets did something. He's a technical analyst. He's a chart-oriented analyst. But the pattern was such that he was, like, convinced that, you know, it really looked like it was going to go down. And he said, I just got to take this trade. You know, if I don't take this trade, what kind of trader am I? So he went short. And ironically, it was one of his best trades of the year. So what he thought the market was going to do, all those trades ended up being net losers. The one where he was really didn't want to take because he, he thought it was generally draw, not the direction he was looking for, tended up to be the, the big one. It's funny.
0: and Even as you're telling that story, another thing I saw from Peter and also from other people later in the book, I mean, right after him, you have uh, some wonderful stories from Jason Shapiro. Both those two traders, and not just in this book, but even in past books, Jack, these traders flail for a while. There's maybe a, a year, a two year period. In fact, I think I think that Peter even tells uh, your readers that it's probably going to take you a couple years before you come up with your methodology. These
2: people don't seem very afraid to fail. I'm glad you picked up on that point because one of the things that struck me, and now I expect that you know, in every book I do on uh, this theme on market wizards. But one of the things that surprised me in the first two books I did was how many of the people who had enormous, I mean, just astounding success, actually were complete failures in the beginning. That was something that I noticed. And again, it happens in this book. In fact, j c mentioned Jason Shapiro. So Shapiro got involved in trading and uh, early in his early years, he had built up this, his account from almost, not, you know, from not much to almost a million dollars. And then he blew it. Um Then a couple of years, a year or two later, he did it again. I think he bought a Porsche this time. And the only thing ended up, you know, when all the smoke cleared was the the car, because luckily he had bought it because all the other money ended up gone. So he he completely wiped out his account two times after, you know, having made turning a small amount into almost a million dollars. Of course, the things that he did wrong then became a lesson for him in the future. And it was those failures that actually made him the trader he ultimately became
0: it's funny from both of those two people and also from other people that you profile it seems like risk management plays a big role in their success
2: absolutely absolutely and i said before if i was forced to name a few points that were critical risk. you know i said discipline was being near the top i can't think of anything that would be higher than risk management and the, the point here particularly for non-experienced traders or investors or novices, what is particularly important to get this point? It's People think that it's all about finding this secret methodology or this method of identifying trade, getting into trades and becoming a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever. It's really, that's not the key. In fact, often it's, it's one of the less important points. The key is to have a rigorous money management uh, discipline so that, You're assured that no single mistake does much damage, so that your trading your your stake doesn't go away. I mean, there's numerous ways to do this, uh, and I certainly mention, I think, quite a number in the book. But that is that is really really critical. And the difference between Jason Shapiro, who blows out his account twice, and Jason Shapiro goes on to make millions, and is is risk management. In the beginning, he would fight the markets. So. Uh, like he, the late 90s, he thought that we were in a bubble. Well, you know what? He was right. And so was, and he mentions Alan Greenspan coming out talking about the famous irrational exuberism. He said his initial response was, Alan and I are the only ones who got this. Well, by the end of the day, the market had rallied. And uh, he knew he was messy, screwed And sure, he and Alan were both right, but they were a couple of years early. And or three years early, and of course, in that meantime, he had completely wiped out. But he just at that point would try to fight the markets or think he was right, and and not have discipline to get out. Now he will never, ever, ever violate a stop, you know, uh, on a trade, and he knows where he's getting out before he gets in, and he will never take uh, stick with a trade if he gets to that point.
0: I look at his personal life in particular. I mean, he went through a divorce. He tells stories to you about working for some absolutely awful firms and people that he just does not jive with at all. And I feel like he saw a lot of the worst of, of wall street, but then he gives that all up. And I found this very contrarian Then he goes to Burma and I think he lives on a monastery. It's amazing to me that some of the best traders you profile, Jack, have these experiences that are so contrary to the get rich trading experience, right? Tell me about Jason in Burma.
2: Well, actually, that was earlier on. That was earlier on. Ah, gotcha. And, and yeah, yeah. So this is after he blew out a couple of times. Uh, he, was, he was in Hong Kong. And this is what, after the second time he blew out his uh, his account. He had signed, he had registered for uh, London School of Economics had some sort of one year business uh, management course, whatever he was going to take. And he had like, like six months in between. So he traveled across Asia and... One of the places, he was in uh, Thailand and uh, found this, uh, this sick monastery in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it's sort of in the middle of a lake. And you have to get some boatmen to take you across. And he started speaking to one of the monks there. And, and the monk asked him if he wanted to stay. So he ended up spending about a month there. And he talks about the experience of, uh, of going out every day in the morning with the monks and, and asking for alms. And here he is, a kid who was brought up sort of in a, in a rich middle-class neighborhood. And he's out there, you know, asking for money for food. And, you know, so that experience instilled in him certain value. And the fact that people who had almost nothing would provide substance. And uh, that sort of stayed with him. And uh, I think it, it affected the way the way he trades. And, and it affects the way he, he looks at uh, just goods and, and wealth and, and yeah. what he needs. And it doesn't – yeah, so he mentions like he drives a 20-year-old car. I mean, the guy's a – you know, he, he, could, he could drive any car he wants, but he doesn't care. And he talks about it before he became really successful, where he was uh, like living in a, a small apartment with his kids. And he had to like have the computer in the kids' room or something like that. And uh, he's managing money and trying to do this and had no money, you know, no no money to spend. because he's, you know, So making money is not at all important. It's not the money. It's training.
0: Yeah, I got this real feeling of that, that it's, he has a completely different view on happiness than just more money, more, 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 that I think you see a lot of people have. And Peter Peter really is the same way, I think, Jack. I mean, Peter does his best when he's not trading other people's money. Oh, I, found yes. it, I found it fascinating that when he traded other people's money, he did, well, not horribly, he still did well, but he gave it back. And he, even when he didn't feel confident, he took 11 years off because he didn't love it anymore. I feel like there's also some confidence and love of the game here going on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So he loved trading from early on. He was completely enamored. And this is back in the early early days with the trading pits. And he talks about seeing, you know, the trading pits and how I, I want to do this, you know. So, uh, so he had that original enthusiasm. And he had two. His his career spans two two periods. And the first time he was in it for about I don't know fifteen years or so. And it got to a point where it was no longer fun. Yeah, he was managing money for a prop firm. He he went from like making hundreds of percent or whatever, to almost, you know, a couple of years where he was like break even. and He had just lost the desire to trade and it was no longer fun. And he sort of gave it up and had no plans to come back in. And then like 11 years later, he's sitting there and he just says, you know, and his wife is next to him and he says, hey, Mona, what do you think? Uh, I'm thinking of, I think maybe I want to start trading again. <laughs> and uh, and it was so long said. since he had traded. He, so long did he trade it, You know, we had the whole transfer to electronic trade. He went on and got his timestamp machine, which he had in the closet and stuff, <laughs> and discovered that was no longer used, you know. And it's like, uh, so it's like a bit, bit funny. But I, and about managing money, then the second part of his career, uh, which was very successful, except for a year, about a 16-month period, and ironically, or maybe, maybe not ironically, those, that was a period where he had agreed to manage money for some friends and family or whatever, and he just completely messed up his head. And finally, he just—he didn't lose much. I mean, I think he lost less than ten percent for them. But he just just couldn't stand it, and uh, so he he gave back the money. And it's funny—the month he gave back, maybe it's not again, maybe it's not ironic. The month he gave back the money from that—that that was his low point on that drawdown. And the next—and you look at his performance. I I made the chart. The next seventeen months, he was straight up. So the idea of having to be responsible to other people and feeling guilty about it for, for some traders, not all traders, obviously. I've, interviewed a lot of hedge fund managers. They're very successful. But for some traders, it, it just messes their head. It's funny.
0: You are friends with him and his wife. And when he said he was going back into it, his wife told him not to, you wrote.
2: Yeah. I, no, she gave him a look. Uh, <laughs> that's what he told me. She gave him a look. Yeah, I think she asked, are you, really, are you sure you really want to do this? Because you know? she had lived through him over the last couple of years. We, we had gone from from loving trading to being miserable about it. So, you know, and that, and that was probably why he wasn't. You know, the two go in hand. You you have to, you have to love the endeavor to succeed. You ask everyone without fail about
0: their motivation, about their influences, and people point to books. I found it very funny. I actually, you know, people overuse the term "laugh out loud," but I laughed out loud when Jason Shapiro said that it was your book that really set him on the path, which I thought was pretty. Awesome. Uh, but Peter had this book from the 1940s, Edward and McGee, uh, Technical Analysis uh, it, it was stopping. actually
2: pre, it was, this was the book that preceded, it was Schaubacher. Oh, that's right, preceded, the 1930s book. Which, yeah, which was 1930s, which preceded Edward and McGee probably by 10 and 15 years. And they may have drawn from, I think they drew from his book as well. So uh, this was the precursor of the famous Edward and McGee technical book.
0: Are there some books that you hear over and over, though, Jack, that really are tomes that great traders love? Yes.
2: Yes. Uh, the book that's most often mentioned without, you know, my, you know, like you mentioned, mine gets mentioned. I don't put all the references in because, you know, I always cringe when I put, <laughs> I only put it in when it's really rel- I only put it in when it's relative to the narrative. Uh, otherwise, it just would come off way too self-serving. But the, uh, the book that comes up the most is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Which uh, which was written uh, in the uh, about sometime around 1920 or so. It was a the writer was Edwin Lefebvre. There was a time where when I first read the book, uh, which was about 65 years after it was written, it was still very pertinent, and you know it was one of the things that inspired me when I wrote the original Market Wizards. My goal, I thought to myself, I want to write a book that you know 65 years from now people will still find pertinent to them trading. And that was really my my goal. I don't remember if I said that in the preface or not, but I know I certainly thought it. And so, Reminiscence of a stock operator is that, and it's about it's about Jesse Livermore. And I remember back when I read it, people thought that Edwin Lefevre might be a pseudonym for Livermore, uh-huh. but it wasn't. He he was a real person. On the seventy fifth anniversary of that book, some publisher asked me to write uh, write a preface to the you know golden edition or whatever. And so I went to, to try to research it, and uh, I actually got to speak to his grandson. Who, his grandson was like about eighty-five, uh, but uh, anyway, he was a journalist. He was a writer, and he got so into the head of Livermore, uh, and Livermore's never mentioned in the book, by the way. But uh, everybody assumes that's who. That's who it's. Uh, he writes it from the first person. You know, so he he writes it as if he's he's a traitor, and he he so captured it. That people assume, almost some people almost assumed that it was Livermore himself that wrote it, but he was just a journalist called Daniel Livermore who wrote all the books.
0: Wow, that's cool! And we'll we'll have a link, by the way, guys, in our show notes uh, page with uh, that book and actually with a lot of the resources that we're talking about today. I want to ask about efficient markets, Jack, because I think that for like a lot of people who have read your work, uh, you're probably the person more than anyone that made me think that maybe the efficient markets uh, idea is, is a little overstated. I would guess, based on the fact that you've interviewed lots of people who seem to consistently have found a way to beat the markets, that you also believe it's overstated.
2: Yeah, well, I, I believe the efficient market hypothesis is wrong without reservation, uh, for multiple reasons, which we don't have time to go into all of them. But just a couple of a couple of them. One is some of the track records of people that I I interviewed uh, in the Market Wizard books, and people will say, "Oh, well, yeah, you know, it's like if you have enough traders, you know, somebody's going to be lucky and 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 do that." Well, okay, that's that's pretty good, but. My idea like is uh, like the the um, Shakespearean monkey uh, analogy saying if you have enough monkeys to randomly hitting uh, hitting uh, keys, uh, this is back in the day of typewriters when the original uh, analogy was done, or I guess keys could still be a keyboard, that some monkey will type Hamlet. Well, yeah, but how many monkeys? And I think probably more monkeys don't fit in the uh, known universe uh, volume-wise. So the uh, same thing, and that goes to the traders. Yeah, you'll get people who outperform, but what, what you know, to get certain levels of outperformance, what would you need? So let me take one person, uh, Ed Thorpe, who's probably most famous for his blackjack betting book, Beat uh, the Dealer. We don't have time to go into it, but he was a, he's both, he was a mathem- PhD mathematician. Uh, he was actually in a PhD course for physics, started taking math courses because he needed to finish his, um, his treatise, uh, which he never finished in physics and got a PhD in math. But anyway, he was the first one to figure this out on on Blackjack, and he wrote that book. But he did a lot of other things, and just absolutely brilliant. He ran two hedge funds. His first hedge fund had 19 years. In those 19 years, there were only three months where he had a negative sign in his returns, and all three of those months were less than 1%. So I did a little calculation of what is the probability, and I use conservative assumptions, uh, what is the probability of getting his track record? And using conservative assumptions, basically I assume that the gains was was the same size as the losses, whereas that's not true. The gains were larger. So the the probability I'm going to give you is even more extreme. I did the probability, and it turned out it's not equivalent. It's even more remote than the following uh, 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 probability. If you were to take one atom randomly out of the entire mass of the Earth, not the surface, but the entire volume of the Earth, to pick one atom randomly, and then you were to randomly pick another atom from the Earth and it happened to be the same atom, that probability is greater than Ed Thorpe's record if if it was luck. Huh. And so uh, it's impossible, in other words. And, and there are examples, the 1987 crash is even more, the probability of that, if the official market hypothesis is correct, you know, that one day, 30% loss, is even more remote than Ed Thorpe's record. So you have those type of empirical examples. Well, let me just give you one which I love, which is from the behavioral economist uh, Richard Thaler. He's one of the pioneers of sure. behavioral economics. I happened to see him in Seattle. He was giving a talk when I was living in Seattle. And he gave this one example. I mean, I've got my own examples in the book, but I think his example was, was the best, was even better than anyone's. In, in, not not this this book we're talking about, but another book I wrote called Market Sense and Nonsense. And uh, Thaler gives this example. There's a, there's a closed-end fund called CUBA. And basically, in and for people who don't know closed end funds it's basically like a mutual fund, but you can't just get you can't get out you um i mean you can sell you can sell the whole thing but uh it, but at a discount or a premium usually these states tr- trade at a discount because they they're not as liquid as a mutual fund so there's this closed end fund which had uh Holdings in in Central America and I believe South America. It's called, its symbol is C U B A. Okay. So now, uh, one day it's trading like about 15% discount or had been, and that's normal. 10 15% discount for closed end funds are common. Then in one day, it goes from a 15% discount to a 70% premium. Holy cow. In one day. Now, what, what the hell happened? And, and that means it's, it's selling literally for 70% more than the value of their holdings. And in one day, it goes from a 15% discount to an 85% swing in one day. What happened? Well, what happened was President Obama announced we were going to normalize relationships with Cuba. The symbol of this is Cuba, okay? However, what makes this particularly hysterical <laughs> is that, you know, first of all, they didn't hold it. They didn't have any holdings in Cuba. In fact, there are no holdings in Cuba. And even if there was, and even if there was any possibility of having any holdings in Cuba, it was illegal to invest in anything in Cuba. So it had nothing to do with it other than the name. So if that doesn't tell you that that the idea that markets are always right is preposterous, I mean, I get like I said, I can give you a million examples. Well, there's <laughs> so many examples, yeah. Yeah, so anyway. it also, markets, it also yeah.
0: reminds me, Jack, of when uh, Zoom went public. Remember that, and everybody bought the wrong one. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the markets are not efficient. There's so many examples, and there's all sorts of reasons why it's not. But it often acts like it, it in a way, it looks like it's random, but it's not. The, the market price is not always right. That that is ridiculous. And uh, and just one more quick example. The whole Nasdaq bubble, where you had all these stocks, which ended up being worthless for going to $200 or whatever. But if you look at the Nasdaq bubble, 18 months, we go up. It it multiplies 600, goes up 600 percent, 18 months. Then in the next 17 months, it goes down 85, which brings it all the way back to where it started. Uh, So so you have this incredible up move, incredible down move, all in the span of just about three years. What happened on the big What happened? During a big up move, and what happened during a big down move that explains the big up move down move really nothing changed You can go back and try to find reasons. All that happened was people who was, got into a euphoria about internet being the future and then at the, you know then at some point, people realized these stocks were were losing money a lot of them and uh, started selling and you know it just went all the way back. So you try telling me the price is always right, in the markets are efficient it 's just nonsense.
0: Wait a minute, Jack. You're not saying that that wasn't the new economy. Remember that. that this is
2: the new economy, man. Well, it was the new economy until it was no longer the. Right. Until it was no longer the new economy. There's always a story. There's always, yeah, it's the you know. And that's kind of an example of this time is different. There's always an explanation of why it's different until it isn't. Which brings me to
0: my next question. I think a natural extension of that is for most of our listeners they get advice a lot and we've talked about it on this show before the indexing is a key way for the average person to invest and find success you've profiled tons of successful traders in the markets is trading something they should look at or is indexing something the majority of our listenership should stick with
2: okay so here this will surprise your listeners after after my diatribe about how the official market is all wrong and how I've written all these books about people who made fortunes in in, in the markets. So actually, for most people, I think they should just buy an index fund, Uh, although timing is important, they should buy it when people hate stocks is much better, and just hold it for 30 years. And for most people, that'll be the best solution. The key, however, is I I divide the universe of traders slash investors into two components. You have people who have an absolute passion for trading or investing. They put in the time and work, and they develop a methodology that has some edge, and they've got innate skills that make it compatible for them to be good at trading, and they've mastered risk management. And, and yeah, for those people, I think trading is a good pursuit, and it could be a life-changing pursuit. However, for the majority of people, go under the misconception that trading – is an easy way to make a lot of money, and it's not. People make a lot of money have done a lot of work to get there. So, if you don't have the passion for trading, and when I say passion for trading, I don't mean you have a great desire to be rich. That's not a passion for trading. I mean a desire for the art of trading, or the or the or chore investing, at just different time frames and holding pairs. But if you don't have that that passion for the endeavor itself, and if you haven't taken the time to develop some edge and skill and confidence then you then you're best off in index funds. So it really depends on which category you're in. And the second category is a lot much larger than the first.
4: Yeah.
0: The new book is called Unknown Market Wizards. I'm assuming Jack, it's available everywhere. Yep, absolutely. Well, thanks a ton for spending some time with us talking trading and efficient and inefficient markets and hopefully good things to come.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. Hey trivia fans,
3: it's Joe's mom's neighbor Doug, and as you probably are well aware, I am not the President of the United States. I know, I know, you're just as shocked as I am, and there's only one explanation. It's all one giant conspiracy. So you're telling me I didn't even win one state? I'm looking at you, Vermont. I spent three whole days campaigning in that state. Thank goodness at least all of you voted for me, and I know that you told all your friends and that they told all their friends. Seems like that alone would have won Palm Springs or De Queen, Arkansas. Something ain't right. Before I break down what's really happening here. Let's go to today's trivia. Just like this country, we need to get back to basics. So let's do this one. A net worth statement includes a few important terms. How about this one? What term on a net worth statement describes items of economic value to an organization? You could even say "Doug would have been a blank to this country where blank means economic value. Got it. I hope so. I'll have the answer for y'all. I love being back in Texas in just a moment. It's funny
0: talking to Jack Schwager. How much it may be the whole time and probably you too think, you know, there's some tweaks that I should do to my portfolio and there also are some things I should do with my investment policy statement to tweak it to be better. I'm not interested personally in trading, but I am interested in having consistent results from my portfolio. You know, one other thing that I'd love to do for myself, but haven't done it. I've always wanted straighter teeth, and especially with my lower jawline, a little bit better smile. While I'm done putting that off, thanks to Candid, straightening my teeth is simpler, easier, and more comfortable than ever. Candid clear aligners are comfortable, removable, and practically invisible, unlike wire braces. So you can transform your smile without anybody noticing. Plus, your treatment's prescribed and monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert in tooth movement. It's all done from the comfort and convenience of my house here in Texarkana. Candid not only works with you, they will work with orthodontists, never general dentists like other companies. Plus, your supervising orthodontist is the same one who's with you every step of the way. It's the same orthodontist who created your plan, so you never have to worry about what's going on. You'll always know, and I love that. The average Candid treatment is about six months. You'll start seeing results way before then. And it costs thousands of dollars less than braces. Start straightening your teeth today and also save some Benjamins. Right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to save $75 on Candid starter kit. Go to CandidCO.com slash SB, then use code SB. That's CandidCO.com slash SB, code SB. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save 75 bucks on your starter kit. CandidCO.com slash SB, code SB.
3: hey trivia fans oh what could have been if i'd actually gotten elected for president things would be so much different today i smell a conspiracy and i think you do too don't you because we all know i was the unspoken favorite of the really really silent majority so how did i go from favorite to not even be enlisted on the ballot or winning a single state Vermont let me ask you who stood to lose the most if i was to lose the election well if you remember one core tenant of my platform was to make the sizzler the national restaurant of the u.s and someone would not have been along for that little ride are you getting what i'm throwing down or do i need to spell it out for you it's todd the so-called assistant manager of the sizzler more like assistant to the manager he's behind all of this Well, Todd will get his, but let's get you your trivia answer. The question was this on a net worth statement. There's a term used that describes items of economic value to an organization. You could even use it in this sentence. Doug would have been a blank to this country. Got it. The term is asset. Of course on a net worth statement. There are assets and liabilities. I just saying would have been a huge asset to this nation. Todd, on the other hand, is a giant liability to me. See how that works? I got to get working on something. My supporters are asking for a speech that involves the words hashtag Doug 2024. What? Too soon? Big thanks to Jack
0: Schwager for stopping by. Oh, gee, I know the idea of an efficient market might not be true, but that we should pretend (laughs) like it's true resonates with you.
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, he's a smarter guy than me. so his research has led him down one path, but I also don't disagree with the fact that there's people out there that have figured out how to produce results beyond it. I mean, you can just look at the morning star numbers, right? You know, we talk about the fact that it's very difficult to beat the market yet 30 to 40% of all investment managers do on an annual basis. So it's not that it's, it's not zero, right? It's some number. It's just hard to do repetitively and it's hard to predict in advance who's going to do it that year?
0: Well, and the emotions involved with having to be contrarian, like most of these people, like he said, are contrarians and being non-emotional and going against what the herd is doing over and over and over and over. I mean, that that takes a lot of fortitude and I'm with him, man. You got to love it. You can't just want to be rich. You have to love it and you have to be disciplined.
4: Two hardest things.
0: Yeah. But I think that we can all learn from that, even if we're only in index funds, having a disciplined approach, like we, you know, you and I get emails all the time from people going, Hey, I was thinking that I would do this strategy with my index fund. I would trade out of it just before the market goes down and then I'll jump back in after the
4: market goes down. And, and no, that's not a strategy. It's not a discipline. You- well, statistically what's happened, you know, with this advent of people, rushing toward lower cost products is they've effectively eliminated the professional person in the middle. And a lot of times people go, Oh, that's a great thing. I've eliminated that cost. I've eliminated that, that, that friction there, but instead most people, and maybe not the people that listen to stacking Benjamins entirely, but, but there are some people out there who do have replaced that portfolio manager, that professional with themselves. And said, I can do this very inexpensively and screwed up just as well as anybody else. And so you see this where if you're trading, if you're doing anything other than rebalancing once a year because of some event and you're justifying it in your brain of like, well, now that the election's over, dot, 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 or prior to the election, dot, 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 or, you know, we'll see how the COVID thing settles out, dot, 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 right? All of that is you being a portfolio manager.
0: And think, by the way, you know, you get rid of that cost by, by doing that yourself, which I think is a great analogy, by the way that you effectively are your own quote active portfolio manager with these passive funds with passive products of S- right, S- yeah. surreal to me why somebody would do that. But think about what Jack said about how much data these people have too. I mean, these professional people, OG have tons of data and they have systems and you go, yeah, I'm going to fire that person. I have no data, no systems. I just have this good feeling that this is something. And by the way, it usually seems obvious and then you have to think to yourself, if if this idea I have is so obvious, why isn't somebody else doing it? I mean, look at these people that Jack talks to and that he profiles. Why are any of yeah. these ge- these people are geniuses and they're not doing this obvious thing because mm-hmm. it's because it's, it's not as good as you may think it is.
4: Yeah. Well, and the scale doesn't exist. You're this big time trader selling your hundred shares of Amazon. Just look at the trades. My uh, brother and I were talking about Tesla. There's a guy that traded 400 million in Tesla in one trade. And that's probably a pretty normal trade, right? <laughs> you know, like a thousand shares or something or or a million, I guess it would have been a million shares. And you could see that transaction and actually moved the market that big of a trade. And here you are trading your hundred shares or whatever. It's just you're not as important as you think, I guess. We all, we all aren't. <laughs> so what? says my 13 year. <laughs>
0: Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency put what you value first.
4: I love giggling at all the election commercials that are still running (laughs) because I'm thinking like, who's in charge of the checkbooks for these people? Because that dude lost.
0: Yeah. Hello.
4: They're like, yeah, we
0: should still run ads. That would be a good idea. I think that's a positive for Doug that he never ran an ad. So he doesn't have
4: to. He got a couple of votes. it,
0: It keeps costs low. Half the idea of running a successful campaign is keeping costs low.
4: He was basically the index fund of presidential nominees.
0: Too bad he missed the, missed all the rest of it. But it was a hell of a campaign. I thought so. Uh, it's your loved ones and your time that Haven Life lists as uh, what you value first. I, by the way, was... Excited to see in our basement Facebook group, uh, people recommending Haven Life after going through it and talking about how easy it is because their application is simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices, and you're covered because of the fact that you're dealing with a company that's more than 160 years old as their parent company, Mass MassMutual. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get your free quote. By the way, just like Steve went and got his uh, estate plan done, Getting your insurance
5: taken care of. You also feel great.
0: Let's throw out the lifeline to our friend Peter. Say hi, Peter.
5: Hey, Joe and OG. Surprise, it's Peter here. Again, unfortunately for you all, I'm a glutton for punishment, and I finally pulled my head out of my colorized charts and graphs stowed away in my alphabetized binders, which happen to be subarranged smallest to largest in reverse order, <laughs> obviously. Why I call, I have no idea, but I won't belabor the point and try to make this show funny for once, like I usually do. Rather, I'll keep it simple. I'm happy to report I've made a huge leap, one in which OG may have been able to be a huge help in planning if only I was wiser and accepted any outside input at all. I've quit my job to join a local small business, and I want access to my retirement funds to bolster my savings, buy a couple more rentals, etc., I know with the CARES Act, anyone affected by COVID, per the IRS guidelines, has access to $100,000 from their specific accounts per person. My wife and I qualify. To that, there is no doubt. The question is, does that $100,000 have to come from an account explicitly in that person's name? For example, if I've got 150,000 in my 401k and she's got 50 in her simple IRA, can I bolster the lack of $100,000 in her accounts with 50 from mine and still be within the law? My CPA won't touch retirement or in any shape or form, and my 401k servicer doesn't seem to understand the question. Maybe it would help if I map it out in a pictogram. Can you guys make heads or tails of this? I'd appreciate any insight. Bye.
0: Hey, Peter, thanks for the question. And by the way, nice job in alphabetizing the charts. Good work. He gets a celebratory nerd from us.
4: You've been waiting on that. I I finally added that to the board. It's about time. I can't say that I totally understand what he's trying to do either, but you can't take money from your IRA and put it in somebody else's unless you're dead. So he just wants to supplement.
0: So she's been affected by COVID, so she can take money
4: out. But the question is: is he is a household maximum of two hundred thousand rather than an individual maximum of hundred? I understand it to be an individual maximum of a hundred. Yeah. A sub note to that, however, if the only purpose of taking money out of your qualified plan is to bolster your savings, which is what I heard you say, which is essentially moving money from one pocket to the other. I think it's rather foolish to do that. Why would you take the money out and pay taxes in order to put it in a different account that is also your money? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's still your money, whether you leave it in your IRA or you take it out. The only difference is, is that you got to pay taxes along the way. And yeah, you're forgiven on the penalty and you have the opportunity to pay it back over a period of time. But remember, it's not pay it back. At the end of three years, it's pay it back proportionally over three. And whatever you don't pay back, the third you don't pay back in 2020 will magically appear on your tax returns this year. So unless you're consuming it for some reason, I don't know why you'd take this,
5: it out.
0: Well, and th- this is what I don't like. I, I don't like mortgaging your future to make the the present better unless, so unless you're grossly overfunded for your retirement goal already, and that money really is extra money for retirement that you don't need later. I wouldn't even consider it. Uh, I think it's a, a big mistake to get rid of security later to duct tape today. Don't you?
4: Yeah. Well, and it, it totally, I do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, the question for me, Peter, isn't whether you can do it or not. And I think there's also been so much ambiguity around these rules that that's why your CPA doesn't want to touch it.
4: (laughs) That's, that's well, I know a lot of CPAs that don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Not just this, but anything that has to do with qualified plans. They just, the risks of being wrong are too high and the costs of being wrong are too high. So, why bother trying to learn? You know a moving target basically because it changes so yep. frequently
0: yeah but still doesn't change my answer which is not how do i do it it's why would you do it it would be my yeah. answer uh, yeah. don't don't do it peter don't do it even though you are a nerd! nerd which is fantastic that is a seal of approval from og and i and homer big thanks to peter for writing in a good good to hear your voice man uh, if you've got a question for us, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Peter's accumulating all the shirts that he can get his hands on. Does he on. get one every time? Uh, I think so. I think it's it's pretty brave. And he also brings it. He preps, man. That didn't sound like he prepped it. Peter's, <laughs> Peter's second or third time calling in over the years. and it's uh, And he's always got a good question. If you've got a question, whatever it might be, there's no such thing as a dumb question, even though... I often tell OG there is such a thing as a dumb answer. Head to com forward slash voicemail, whether it's on your phone, where of course you have a microphone, if your computer's got a microphone, super easy to call in. com forward slash voicemail. And last but not least, I've been told by OG that this is the final call for 2020. Just like Steve Stewart finally got his estate plan done. If you're finally going to, hire that financial planner in your corner and you're interested in talking to OG and his team about what it would take to get his team in your corner, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG and you can make 2021 better with better help in your corner. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, I got to say, sorry about the election, man. You gave it a good run. My friend gave it a good run. Just wasn't meant to be.
4: How soon do you think it's going to be till he has Doug 2024 t-shirts? I think he could probably parlay this this campaign into like uh, a road commission seat in 2022. <laughs> you know, railroad board, something, you know, something maybe a little bit more suited to his uh, personality and qualifications. Bowie County Railroad Commission here in yeah. Northeast Texas. Yeah. I mean, they need people, so use it as like a stepping stone to future future elections baby steps baby steps doug school board maybe all right you got it from here doug
3: what should we have learned today so what should we have learned today first take a lesson from our headlines start with what's important is netflix important make sure to stay on top of your subscriptions otherwise they might be increasing the price without your knowledge Second, take a lesson from Jack Schwager. There are certainly ways that you can actively invest in the stock market and win. But in most cases, passive is the way to go. But the big takeaway? I may not be president, but at least I'm not Todd. Maybe that's my slogan for next year. I'm not Todd. No, I don't mean you, Todd, you fantastic listener. I'm talking about the other Todd. No, not him, the guy at the Sizzler. Look, if your name is Todd, good for you. No offense, meant. God, man, politics is hard. Special thanks to Jack Schwager for joining Joe today. You can find out more about Jack at jackschwager.com. We will also have a link to his latest book, Unknown Market Wizards, The Best Traders You've Never Heard Of, on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Also, don't forget to sign up for the Stack. It's our live event on YouTube. You can sign up and learn more at StackingBenjamins forward Stack. Our special guest, Vicky Robin, Michael Santos, and the magician Dan Chan will be speaking and performing live with Joe O.G. Bobby Rebel and Doc G on YouTube on November tenth at seven p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hope to see you there. This show is created by Joe Saul Salcihai, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Duggan. I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor.
0: So as you've seen here, OG, we, we have mattresses on the floor, this card table to record, and uh, a table in the kitchen, no other furniture, absolutely nothing. But I do have a new TV that I promised myself that I was going to buy when I finally had a house again. And uh, we've been making good use of that. By the way, when I, when I went to that TV- do you sit on the floor? We do. It just sits on the floor on the- the stand that came with it. But I'll tell you this, I bought that for the podcast and for future videos and it's going to go in here, but it's the first 4k TV we've owned. And I went with a good quality one. Best Buy was having a really good deal on Samsung TV. So I didn't buy the OLED TV. I just couldn't spring for the 1500 bucks or whatever it was, 1100 bucks. But I bought a really nice late model Samsung, uh 55 inch TV But when I went to Michigan last week on the cat rescue and brought back our old TV that used to be in our bedroom, I brought that thing in and Cheryl goes, I think I like the new TV better. Well, I'm sorry. That's a business expense. It's going in the, (laughs) it's going, it's going in the, going in the other room, but we have been making good use of this TV on the floor. We've watched a lot of uh, TV and today I actually want to talk about two series that we've been watching the first one is play a little clip from we watch this show on Netflix called Emily in Paris.
1: Emily Cooper. Bonjour. Bonjour. I got a feeling I'm in trouble when I look at you. Uh, I'm Emily. You're your new neighbor?
5: Enchanté.
2: So you've come to teach the French some American tricks? Never get
1: enough. Has anyone noticed this is a very dysfunctional workplace?
4: I think you're the one bringing the drama.
6: I'm so glad we're friends. So you're single
3: in Paris? I didn't tell them you had a girlfriend.
0: She finds out that her neighbor that she really likes has a girlfriend and it actually is a woman who's a friend of hers. Emily is a woman who lives in Chicago, young woman. Uh, At the last minute, she has to stand in for her boss, who it turns out is pregnant and can't travel. This is obviously pre-COVID and uh, flies to Paris, uh, knows absolutely no French, knows nothing about France, but of course is in love like a lot of people are with Parisian culture. And of course, uh, French people dislike her and she tramples a lot of French customs. And she learns a lot about the differences between America and France. This series has had a ton of backlash. In fact, uh, I'm looking at a piece right now from the independent Emily in Paris. Lily Collins, who plays Emily, addresses, quote, disheartening backlash to Netflix series for first time. There has been just just a ton of uh, people saying that. Let's just call this what it is. OG. this is a really stupid show. This, this is an incredibly stupid show, but what was interesting about it was it was so stupid. I couldn't stop watching. Like if you've been here before when mom's watching those Christmas Hallmark movies and every Christmas Hallmark movie is exactly the same, right? It's the same thing with a, with a different spin on it. This is the same show you've seen a hundred times. That's absolutely mind numbing. And yet. Just like those Hallmark movies, I couldn't stop watching it.
4: And you need stronger friends in your corner. If I would have been there, I would have helped by just bashing the television.
0: Just saying, oh, God, no, you can't watch this.
4: Yeah, that's exactly what would have happened.
0: Yeah, and I really dislike the main character. Like, she, she didn't do any homework. We were joking earlier about not doing any homework, about going to Japan. She does no homework before going to Paris, and she consistently is just stepping in it. What I liked about that, though, was the idea. There's a general idea to this show that, you know what? Your way is not always the right way. And I know the more that I travel, the more I see people do things that I question. And then I realize that I definitely have a point of view that is, you know, <laughs> Midwestern white guy from the middle of the country. And maybe other people have a different outlook or mindset than I have. So that piece I like. Uh, the show definitely... A thumbs down, but I couldn't stop watching it. And I know there's a lot of people who are going to tell me the same thing. Could not stop watching it. Now, contrast that with another show that I'm three quarters with on the first season. This is an American who knows nothing about soccer, who goes to coach in the British Premier League. Arguably the number one And a lot of people are going to disagree with this, but arguably the number one soccer league in the world. This American who knows nothing about soccer coached American football at Wichita State. This show on Apple TV is called Ted Lasso.
4: Oi mate, this is you.
5: I believe it is. (laughs) Wicked.
4: You coaching football. You are a legend for doing something so stupid. I mean it's mental. They're gonna murder you bit of news from the other side of the Atlantic. AFC Richmond announced the hiring of their new manager,
1: American football coach Ted Lasso. You're an American who's now in charge of a football club despite possessing very little knowledge of the game. I know that AFC Richmond is going to give you everything they got win or lose.
0: Or tie. Right, y'all do ties here. Did
1: you see that? He must be from England, yeah. (laughs) Wales, is that another country? Yes and no. How many countries
3: are in this country?
0: four he knows absolutely nothing about the uk how many countries are in this country four ah jason sudeikis plays ted lasso he's hired by the owner of the franchise who's just gone through a divorce the billionaire man has been caught cheating on his marriage time after time after time And during the divorce, she gets the team. Her goal, by the way, is to take this team that her ex-husband loves and to destroy it. And the very first thing she does is hires a guy who knows absolutely nothing about soccer. And she says, puts on this face that she believes in him and things are great. And by the end of the first episode, by the way, you find out that she wants nothing more than for this idiot to fail. Like Major League. Yeah. And actually, you know what's funny? The show very much feels like Major League. If you watch that, that show and you liked it. The difference between this show and Emily in Paris is that Jason Sudeikis' character is so damn likable, and he's just trying to bring people together. And he full well acknowledges that he doesn't know anything. And while Emily steps in it, and Ted also steps in it, the fact that Ted consistently seems like he's trying to make things better, and he's just working hard. And Ted, by the way, doesn't really care if they win games which is amazing. And he tells this to a reporter during the season who's going to write this expose about just how bad a manager he is. And the team's absolutely failing. I thought this series was fantastic. I thought it was very, very, very good TV just because of the characters. And they're so likable. Like I find half the time with Emily in Paris, I didn't like Emily. I unfailingly, like Ted. In fact, that's built into his character. The owner of the team keeps getting annoyed because the guy she's trying to fire is so damn likable. And uh I read ye- just yesterday that Ted Lasso was picked up for a second season by Apple TV. Even before they started shooting the second season, Apple TV just signed them to a third season. And the reason is they have brought in so many new people to Apple TV that Apple obviously loves the fact that this show is just bringing in new, new viewers. This is a great show. I don't know if it's a family show. There's some, there's some British, he has a, a, uh, nickname that's pretty damn funny that while in America, it doesn't really mean anything internationally has, has a lot more meaning. Uh, a creative British way of swearing is his nickname. So, um, Ted Lasso though, great show. Both of these shows, half an hour, both cover a lot of the same territory. Somebody in a spot where they probably don't belong handled completely
5: differently.
0: Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's military appreciation month and we are giving out shout outs to all of our friends who have,